0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: A very tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade Menezes is out gallivanting around today, so we're recording this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Brand spanking new content for you. Give us a good chance to empty out the mailbag. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, simply send us an email. That email address is openline@ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. And our host this Tuesday, as is every Tuesday, the aforementioned Father Wade Menezes. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, Jack. It's good to be here earlier than the actual day this airs, but it doesn't mean I'm bilocating. Okay? okay, I want to I want to make that clear.
1: All right. So <laughs> the voice you're listening to is never mine. Whose is it?
2: Well, with you, it could be Johnette's <laughs> voice <laughs> you're listening to. <laughs> but uh, no. In regards to good and evil, is it God's? voice god's love that you're listening to or is it satan's voice satan's hate Uh, i got this off of the following website that i think is very very good jack uh, and that is um, catholicexorcism.org catholicexorcism.org and it's in a prayer card form that's titled whose voice are you listening to take every thought captive Whose voice are you listening to? And if you go to org, you will see the, the holy card there on a nice cardstock, and you can get a copy for yourself. Uh, it's based on... St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Now, this is a New Testament reading that we often hear, for example, uh, read at weddings. It's one of the wedding options. But we also hear it throughout the liturgical year, both the the weekday cycle, uh, years 1 and 2, and also the Sunday cycles, whether years A, B, or C. And it's this. We've all heard it. It's all familiar to us. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love is not pompous. It is not inflated. Love is not rude. It does not seek its own interests. Love is not quick-tempered. It does not brood over injuries received. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. Again, chapter 13, verses four through seven of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So this Holy card, if you will, at Catholic Exorcism.org says, Whose voice are you listening to? And then it takes this passage and it makes two categories God's love and language, or Satan's hate and language. So, for example, God's love is patient, Satan's is impatient. His hate is impatient. God's love is kind, Satan's hate is harsh and unkind. God's love is not jealous, Satan's hate is jealous. God's love is not boastful, but Satan's hate is boastful. God's love is not rude, but Satan's hate is rude. God's love does not seek out its own interests. Satan's hate does seek out its own interests. God's love does not keep accounts of wrongs or wrongdoings. Satan's hate does keep accounts of wrongs or of wrongdoings. God's love does not rejoice over unrighteousness or injuries received. Satan's hate does rejoice in sin and their own and others and injuries received through those sins. God's love rejoices in the truth. Satan's hate rejoices in falsehood. God's love bears all things. Satan's hate suffers nothing, bears nothing. God's love believes all things. Satan's hate doubts everything. God's love hopes in all things. Satan's hate despairs of everything. God's love perseveres through all things, and Satan's hate quits everything. And God's love never fails, and Satan's hate always loses.
1: Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I might be Satan.
2: <laughs> well, I'm telling you what. This is a good examination of conscience. This is a great examination of conscience. As is that passage from St. Paul's First Letter to the Corinthians, Chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It is not pompous. Read that same passage again, friends. But wherever the lo- the word love is, put in your own first name as a good examination of conscience. Wait is patient. wait is kind. Weight is not jealous. Well, wait a minute here. (laughs) I can't say that all the time with a clear conscience. So say that same passage. Read meditatively that same passage, but in, in place of the word love, put your own first name. And that's a great examination of conscience. And then also, Jack, uh, on the flip side of that card, we have the good fruits of the Holy Spirit. We know traditionally there's 12. Uh, nine in most uh, scripture translations, but an extra three in uh, St. Jerome's uh, Latin Vulgate, which he completed in Bethlehem. He adds the three extra ones of modesty, self-control, and chastity. That's why the, the Catholic traditional listing of the, of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is, is 12. But Galatians 5, 22 through 23 uh, is where we receive these 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit, wherein we read, But the fruit of the Spirit is charity, that is, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, modesty, self-control, and chastity. So the good fruits of the Holy Spirit, that's what they are. Now the bad fruits of Satan, I'll, I'll juxtapose against the good fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love... For Satan, it's hatred. Joy of the Holy Spirit, it's misery for Satan. Peace, it's discord for Satan. Patience, it's impatience for Satan. Kindness, it's harshness for Satan. Goodness, it's wickedness for Satan. Generosity is greediness for Satan. Gentleness of the Holy Spirit is violence for Satan. Faithfulness is unreliability. Modesty is immodesty. Self-control is indulgence for Satan. And chastity is lust for Satan. So again, uh, these two lists that I've just shared for this springboard, whose voice are you listening to? Take every thought captive, uh, is from a prayer card of that title from the St. Michael Center for Spiritual Renewal. Uh, which website or whose website uh, address is www.catholicexorcism.org. Again, catholicexorcism.org. And it's just a, a great examination of conscience because we can fly off the handle so easily. You know, in focus, uh, The focus of Open Line Tuesday is faith, family, and fellowship. And in all three of those categories, we can easily get off track of the faith, get off track with family and family members and family situations, and also get off track with fellowship. And so it's good to look at these lists of these virtues from uh, St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, again, chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, and then juxtapose it against uh, Satan's opposites uh, from those virtues listed in that passage from 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. And then secondly, the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit, seeing the juxtaposition of Satan's hate against uh, the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so this is something that that's worth looking at periodically. I think it's also a great website to go look at Catholicexorcism.org and uh, to want to better yourself. you know I've always said uh, on, on open line many times, uh, number 1803 of the Catechism gives us the, the definition of virtue and virtuous living. And I like to say this as well. you know it says that we pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful, with virtue and virtuous living, what are the opposite of those? If God calls us to the good, the true, and the beautiful in concrete daily actions, with all five of the bodily senses and the four primary faculties of the soul—intellect, will, memory, and imagination—Satan calls us to the opposite of the good, the true, and the beautiful, which would be the bad, the false, and the ugly.
1: Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We talk faith, family, and fellowship on Tuesdays. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, we would love to hear from you. All you have to do is send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. You can also leave us a message on our listener comment line, and we'll get to some of those a little bit later in the program today as well. All you have to do is simply give us a call after, after 3 p.m. Central Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, at our regular number, 833 288 E-W-T-N. That's 833-288-3986. Don't call it now because we won't be there to have you leave a message. But uh, after 4 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, you can call that number 833-288-3986 and leave your um, voicemail for us on our listener comment line. But to be part of a regular mailbag, just simply send us the email. The email address again, openline at ewtn.com. That's openline, all one word at ewtn.com. Once again, we're not taking your phone calls today. We're emptying out the mailbag, a, mail, a very special, rather, mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with our very favorite Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show... The address is openline at ewtn.com.
1: You know ewtn offers the holy sacrifice of the mass from our Lady of the Angels Chapel live every morning at 8 p.m. or 8 a.m. rather eastern time right after the sunrise morning show. Don't miss out. We can even send you a link to your email inbox every day visit ewtn.com and simply click On subscribe. Once again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Ryan writes in, what is the church's position on communicating with the dead?
2: Okay, great question. You know, we we do have a communion with the dead, and it's one of praying and suffrages uh, to offer for the dead, precisely because the dead are part of the doctrine of the communion of saints for those deceased who are in purgatory and who are members of the Church uh, suffering, also known as members of the Church, penitent, and so uh, we look to number 1055 of the Catechism. Just a, a portion here that I'd like to to share for Ryan's question. It says, "By virtue of the communion of saints, the Church commends the dead to God's mercy and offers her prayers, especially the holy sacrifice of the Eucharist." On their behalf. Uh, this is why it's so important to have a Mass uh, for the deceased loved one, preferably at the time of their Catholic burial, have a Catholic funeral Mass. Um, also number 958 of the Catechism kind of reminds us also of the importance of, of praying for the dead, under a heading titled, interestingly enough, Communion with the Dead. But don't think of it in a modern secular sense that we communicate with the dead, because that's not what communion with the dead means here. The number 958 of the Catechism is very clear. It reads, quote, "...in full consciousness of this communion of the whole mystical body of Jesus Christ, the Church and its pilgrim members on earth, uh, the Church militant, from the earliest days of the Christian religion has honored with great respect the memory of the dead. And because it is a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead... That they may be loosed from their sins she offers her suffrages for them and that's quoting second maccabees 12 45 and then it ends with something very interesting it says our prayer for them meaning the deceased our prayer for them is capable not only of helping them but also making their intercession for us effective so do the holy souls in purgatory have an effective intercessory power of prayer for those of us still living on earth members of the church militant yes provided we are first praying for them 958 is very clear about that so yes ryan uh the the church's position on on uh not so much communicating with the dead but having communion with the dead meaning the members of the church uh penitent the church suffering in purgatory and we don't know who they are we don't know the judgment of individual persons at their death but we do know this that The souls in heaven do not need our prayers, we ask them to pray for us. The souls in purgatory do need our prayers, and we can also ask them to pray for us. And the souls of the damned who go there by their own doing, no prayer will help them. And so when we talk about uh, communion with the dead, we're talking about those that are in purgatory, the members of the Church penitent, the members of the Church suffering.
1: Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Wendy writes in, I am pro-life but having trouble explaining why in difficult circumstances it is still not okay to get an abortion. Are there any resources for victims of rape to deliver their babies? Has anyone ever considered teaming up with Planned Parenthood and doing away with abortions but still offering resources to women?
2: Well, you, you have a hopeful thought there when you ask, Wendy, has anybody ever thought... Or consider teaming up with Planned Parenthood and doing away with abortions. I don't think Planned Parenthood wants to do away with abortions. That would
1: do away with Planned Parenthood.
2: Right, exactly. And, and a big money income that they receive from abortions. You know, 2271 of the Catechism, Wendy, says that since the first century, the Church has affirmed the moral evil of every procured abortion. Uh, this teaching has not changed and remains unchangeable. Direct abortion, that is to say abortion willed either as an end or as a means, is gravely contrary to the moral law. And we read in the ancient Didache, a first-century document, "You shall not kill the embryo by abortion, and shall not cause the newborn to perish." That's right out of the Didache, the ancient first-century document, uh, which has apostolic ties to it. Uh, also, we read in Gaudium et Spes from the Second Vatican Council. Uh, paragraph number 51, we read this, God, the Lord of life, has entrusted to men the noble mission of safeguarding human life and all must carry it out in a manner worthy of themselves. Life must be protected with the utmost care from the moment of conception. Abortion and infanticide are abominable crimes. Abortion and infanticide are abominable crimes. So, yes, there are many, many, Pregnancy sinners, both Catholic founded and non Catholic founded, either Protestant founded, non denominational founded, and even non Christian founded pregnancy centers who want to provide the services that you're asking about to assist women who need that assistance, because financially they're, they're not able to maybe bear a child, and so they're thinking or contemplating about the abortion. And these pregnancy centers are there to assist those women, and they do great, great work. Uh, some of them actually have medical facilities to give the sonogram, et cetera, and have hired professionals that either volunteer their time or work at these pregnancy centers to provide those basic medical needs. But a lot of the pregnancy centers as well don't have any medical facilities. It's simply a a pregnancy center with clothing, diapers, uh, written resources to guide you on how to care for your newborn, et cetera. But they do have referrals to pro-life medical centers that would assist the woman if the pregnancy center itself doesn't have any of those medical uh, abilities. But some of the pregnancy centers do. So uh, I commend you on on saying you're pro-life, and and yet you have trouble explaining why in difficult circumstances it's still not okay to get an abortion. Again, uh, abortion and infanticide are abominable crimes. It's up to us to stop the line of the crime. Uh, We gotta stop the evil and we don't place one more evil on top of another evil. We want to stop the evil in its tracks. And we do that by, let's let's say, for example, it was a rape situation. We don't want to add evil on top of evil by adding the, the abortion on top of the rape. We want to stop the evil. There's power in stopping the evil. And it's within our jurisdiction, if you will, being pro-life and living a pro-life ethic to stop the evil in its tracks. Even if the mother ends up giving it up for adoption, fine, okay, but she brought it to life and she helped stop the evil in her track tracks. Great question.
1: Angela would like to know, what is the significance of blue priestly vestments?
2: Angela the Roman rite of the Catholic Church has no blue priestly vestments whatsoever. It is not a liturgical color, although you can see blue accented on white vestments for the Blessed Mother. That said, I am aware of the fact that the Anglican Church uh, does have blue or, or does offer blue as a liturgical vestment color of choice, but I don't know necessarily what liturgical season, they plug it into. For example, with, with the Roman rite of the Catholic Church, white and gold are for the three divine persons, uh, saints who were non-martyrs, uh, the Blessed Virgin, etc. Uh, gold is for the Trinity. Uh, but you can even accent in gold with white for some of these other saints, especially if they're your patronal saints. Uh, the red vestments are for the martyrs, the green vestments are for ordinary time, and the violet vestments are for penitential seasons, namely uh, the penitential season of Lent and the more sober, awakening, quasi-penitential season of Advent, what some religious orders even call the Little Lent, because it is meant to be penitential in one sense, but it's more of a penit- penitence. Uh, vision, a vision of penitence, if you will, that's more uh, looking towards sobriety and quietness and, and awakening and awaiting the birth of Christ, where Lent, per se, is more penitential in nature. So those two seasons have violet uh, for that uh, penitential time, uh, so we do not have blue, and I'm not sure what the Anglicans would plug it into. But...
1: Well, I can I can help you out there. I, I I would modify your statement just a little bit by saying that in the Roman rite, we're not supposed to have blue vestments.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but there right. are
1: some out there. Rather than violet, there I've been in parishes where they have blue instead of violet, and. And it's it's that's wrong. Not right.
2: Yeah, it's not. It's yeah. not it, it, It's not right at all. Uh, violet is what's penitential, not blue. Although we would not have a problem with blue being accented in a white vestment or a white and gold vestment, say for the Blessed Mother on one of her higher feast days, like the Immaculate Conception, December eighth, or the Assumption on August fifteenth. Great question, Angela. Thank you.
1: Henry writes in, "Why didn't God just not create Satan or sin in the first place?"
2: Well, that's a good question, Henry. Except for your very question implies that God did create Satan in sin. He did not. Uh, you're asking, why didn't God just not create Satan or sin in the first place? Again, your question is implying that he did create Satan, that he did create sin. No, God created only the angels and all of them good, but they were given one choice to choose for God or against God. And those who chose for God remain our helpers on earth and in heaven with God. And those who uh, chose against God uh, remain our tempters on earth and are cast into hell. Uh, The same thing with sin. Uh, God gave us free will to choose for him or against him, and our first parents uh, chose against him. And so this ushered the original sin into the reality of the world, the two chief effects of which are a darkened intellect and a weakened will. Prior to the fall of our first parents we had a uh, 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 an enlightened intellect and a strengthened will, but then after the fall that strengthened will became weakened and that enlightened intellect became darkened, uh, and so we have sin in Uh, entering the world where vice competes with virtue, etc. But God did not create either. Now, God does permit things to function according to their proper natures. Okay, so if the human intellect chooses against God, sin will surface, either venially or mortally, from that intellective act that the human person made against God. God permits things to go forward and function according to their nature. Even St. Thomas Aquinas in talking about the creation, the six-day creation, says, you know, even if our first parents hadn't have sinned, and there would have been no original sin, uh, even, if, even if our first parents hadn't have sinned, uh, cows would still need to be milked, uh, corn would still have to be shucked to eat it before you can eat it, uh, trees would still have to be cut down in order to build houses. The only difference is we'd enjoy this work (laughs) but but because of the fall of our first parents we now do these things by the sweat of our brow okay why do i mention this because it's 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 according to a cow's nature a bovine nature to be milked once she gives birth to a calf. It's the nature of a tree to have to be cut and cleaned before you can use it to build the log cabin. It's the nature of corn to have to be picked and then shucked uh, before you can enjoy, you know, the, 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 the buttery kernel corn. So God has things work according to their nature and he lets things function according to their nature Uh, so we would still have to do these things even if the fall hadn't have taken place the only difference is we would enjoy doing them but because of the fall we now toil by the sweat of our brow and women give birth with the pangs of labor great question
1: once again it's a very special mailbag edition of ewtn's open line tuesday with father wade menezes not taking your phone calls today if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag Just send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: You know, we uh, Father Wade has on his, his portion of the Fathers of Mercy website 14 uh, exercises that will help improve your spiritual life. One of those is a daily Divine Mercy chaplet. We can help you with that Monday through Friday. We uh, recite the Chaplet of Divine Mercy uh, right here on EWTN Radio at 5 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, that's the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, Monday through Friday morning, 5 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Um, but we are giving a big, fat plug for the Fathers of Mercy, and they're going to fill the house now because they pro- they have finally gotten rid of that bum, Ken Geraci. <laughs> and uh, and have gotten themselves a real vocations director, from what I understand. And you can tell Father Ken I said that. <laughs> oh, c-
2: believe me, Jack, uh, Father Ken will hear you <laughs> saying this directly, okay? I'm, I'm staying out of this one. But, yes, we, Fathers of Mercy, want to welcome uh, Father Joseph Morgan as our new vocation director for the community. He's one of our fairly newly ordained priests from a couple years back. And he is the new vocation director. And Father Ken Gerace is going full-time on the mission band. So we welcome Father Ken full-time to the mission ban, and we also thank Father Ken for the great job he did as vocation director the years he was in that assignment, in that position, and we welcome Father Joseph Morgan and wish him well. Father Morgan has announced to the community that as a general rule, the last weekend of each month uh, will be set aside for a come-and-see weekend for men who care to visit us, who are contemplating and discerning a priestly vocation with an active missionary preaching apostolate, uh, the last weekend of each month as a general norm, and if the individual cannot make it during that last weekend, Uh, he can contact Father Joseph at vocations at fathersofmercy.com and set up his own schedule to come visit the community. You know, Jack, I'm often asked, what are some of the signs of a Fathers of Mercy vocation? And I like to respond that we Fathers of Mercy are looking for good, solid Catholic men who are unabashedly in love with our Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, men who want to help transform a veritable culture of death into a culture of life and love by showing and giving it the mercy of God. We seek virtuous men for the fathers of mercy who, despite their own failings, have experienced the mercy of God themselves and so are able to give that great gift to others. Uh, Men who want to live joyfully the evangelical counsels of poverty, (laughs) chastity and obedience, all while living and sharing a common life of prayer, work, and fraternity. So if you're 18 to 40 years old and you're discerning a possible priestly vocation, within an active missionary uh, preaching order. Take a look at the Fathers of Mercy at our general website address and surf through our website with all of its various tabs and links, fathersofmercy.com. Again, fathersofmercy.com. And you can contact our new vocation director, again, Father Joseph Morgan. We wish him well on this new assignment. You can contact him directly at vocations at fathersofmercy.com. That's the word vocation with an S at the end of it. Vocations at fathersofmercy.com.
1: You know you you have unique challenges uh, in religious life. and And this is a perfect illustration of one because, you know, while Father Ken did a phenomenal job as the vocations director, it keeps him off the mission band for a certain amount of time. That and is he's correct. such a very dynamic uh, preacher. With such a dramatic story.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So uh, we've had vocation directors in the past who also serve as the student master. For example, I was in that dual position. So that pulled me back even more from uh, the mission band back then when I did those two assignments and yet still preached on the road and and Kin, being vocation director uh, took him off the road from some mission work because the vocations work kept him so steady so steady uh, and now father Joseph Morgan isn't only the uh, vocation director but he's also the local house superior for the main general at house overseeing the day-to-day runnings of the general at house so uh, we wish him well in both of those assignments
1: eight uh, well I won't give the phone number because it's a very special mailbag edition of mailbag today open line tuesday keith wants to know if it's good to pray for the dead
2: yeah keith you know go back to the beginning of the show and and we had a question from ryan uh... ryan asked what is the church's position on communicating with the dead and i think he's asking that question more from a secular uh... point of view or purview uh... and there is a section the catechism that's titled at the top communion with the dead but it's a communion of offering suffrages a communion of prayer why Because the dead who are in purgatory, the members of the church suffering or the members of the church uh, penitent, uh, are part of the three-tiered hierarchy of what we call the doctrine of the communion of saints, right? So the members of the church triumphant in heaven, the members of the church militant still fighting the good fight while living still on earth, and the members of the church suffering in purgatory. Remember, the damned souls in hell who are there by their own choosing by purposeful-willed, non-repentant mortal sin— Those souls don't benefit from prayer. So when we talk about communion with the dead, we're talking specifically about the church penitent and the church suffering, the same. there of the souls in purgatory. And the members of the church triumphant in heaven, they don't need our prayers. We need their prayers. And so uh, number 958 is where I would like to uh, direct you to there, Keith. And again, it says uh, regarding communion with the dead, in full consciousness of this communion of the whole mystical body of Christ, that is the church triumphant in heaven and the church militant on earth and the church suffering or the church penitent in purgatory, uh, the church and its pilgrim members, those of us who are members of the Church Militant, have from the earliest days of the Christian religion have honored with great respect the memory of the dead because it is a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from their sins, and she offers her suffrages for them. Our prayer for them is capable not only of helping them, but also of making their intercession for us more effective. So that's number 958 there, Keith. I would also like to uh, direct you to number 1032 of the Catechism. Number 1032, And uh, it also expounds on this uh, beautiful reality of praying for the deceased. And in 1032, we read this. Uh, the teaching is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead, already in mentioned already mentioned in Sacred Scripture. Therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered from their sins. That's uh, number 609, footnote in the Catechism, quoting 2 Maccabees 1246. So, from the beginning, the Church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrages for them, above all, the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that thus purified they may attain the beatific vision of God. The Church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. And that is number 1032 of the Catechism. St. John Chrysostom, early church father, says, "...let us help and commemorate the dead. If Job's sons were purified by their father's sacrifice, why would we doubt that our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation?" Let us not hesitate to help those who have died and to offer our prayers for them. Uh, again, that's uh, Saint John Chrysostom, and number uh, six eleven footnote of the Universal Catechism, which is part of paragraph number ten thirty two. So there you go, uh, Keith. Great question on on whether or not it's good to pray for the dead.
1: And once again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Uh, Belinda writes in, at the end of time, who prays for the souls in purgatory then?
2: Great question. Well, purgatory ceases at the end of time, the Church teaches at the end of the final uh, judgment, at the time of the final judgment, purgatory ceases. And this is uh, mentioned in both number 1030 of the Catechism, it's intimated, as well as number fourteen. Seventy-nine. So, uh, we read the final purification or purgatory. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The Church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. So, purgatory equals purification. Hell equals punishment. The Church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and the councils of Trent. Uh, the tradition of the Church, by reference to certain scriptural texts, speaks of a cleansing fire. Uh, number 607, for example, 1 Corinthians 3.15 and 1 Peter 1 1.7. Uh, and then we read in number uh, 608 footnote from St. Gregory the Great in the Catechism. He says, as for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, so there's the intimation right there, that purgatory seems. Ceases at the final judgment. St. Gregory the Great says, As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned, neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come, which should be after one's earthly death. And so that tells us a little bit of, more about purgatory and why it exists, why it's a doctrine of the faith for those who die yet imperfectly purified. And then number 1479 uh, is very telling as well. Uh, it's, it gives us a, a, a good intimation as well of the reality of purgatory and the fact that it ceases uh, at the end of time, wherein we read this. Again, number 1479 of the Catechism. Since the faithful departed, now being purified, are also members of the same communion of saints, one way we can help them is to obtain indulgences for them so that the temporal punishment due for their sins may be remitted. Temporal punishment that was not yet atoned for at the time of their earthly death. But the chance to do that after your earthly death ceases at the time of the general judgment, the final coming of Jesus Christ. So great question there, Belinda, and we thank you so much for that.
1: Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. got an email from Jeff, and he asks, Is death natural to the human person since in the beginning we were made to live forever?
2: Well, that's a, that's a great, great question. And, and semper distingue, Jeff, always make distinction, St. Thomas Aquinas would teach us. So the Church herself, in her magisterial authority, does teach that there is a beginning of biological life, uh, and that there should be no end to it of biological human life, okay? Uh, death is unnatural. It's an apparent separation of body and soul. Uh, There is an end now of biological human life, but because of Christ, because of his death, death itself now is a gateway to a new beginning and eternal life. So Jesus defeated death, which came into the world through the original sin of our first parents. Jesus defeated death by his own death. The very tool that the devil used to bring down humankind— Jesus used to bring humankind back up. So again, the Church teaches there is a beginning of life, but there should be no end. Okay, so in that sense, death is unnatural. It's an apparent separation of body and soul. So now, after the fall of our first parents, there is an end now of biological human life, but because of Jesus Christ and his death, death now is a gateway to a new beginning of eternal life. And that's the Church's teaching. It is unnatural prior to the fall of our first parents. It's considered natural after the fall, and it's remedied by the death of Christ. His very death, his very paschal mystery, the four-event event event of his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, uh, his very paschal mystery, that four-event event, event, serves as the gateway uh, by which we enter into eternal life.
1: Eight. uh... Well, actually, you can call 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can leave a uh, voicemail for us with your uh, on our listener comment line. Just call that number 833-288-EWTN after 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, Trisha, I don't know if Trisha's hoping or if Trisha's asking, but she wants to know if the Holy Spirit is female.
2: The Holy Spirit is neither female nor male, but pure spirit. Just exactly what the Holy Spirit is, is is pure spirit. Uh, And so we would not ascribe uh, uh, femalehood, womanhood, uh, to the Holy Spirit, uh, nor uh, to the Trinitarian Godhead, although Jesus, the Son, was incarnated in male form in a full human nature, just like ours in all things but sin. And although Jesus uh, indeed revealed the, the first person of the Trinity as Father to show a relationship with him as the incarnate Son, uh, Jesus never gave an ascribing of one of the two genders to the Holy Spirit at all. And so instead, we have uh, uh, symbols and signs of the Holy Spirit, like, like water, uh, fire— Uh, Water for cleansing, for example, the water that's used at baptism and the calling of the Holy Spirit at the baptism. Uh, The fire, as though tongues of fire, that descended upon the Blessed Mother and the Twelve Apostles in the upper room at the time of Pentecost. Uh, Jesus also called uh, the Holy Spirit the consoler, the one who consoles. Um, The advocate, the one who speaks on behalf of, advocare. Uh, think of a lawyer. Uh, the, the lawyer speaks on the client's behalf in the courtroom. There you go, Jack. The Holy Spirit is your lawyer. There you go. <laughs> okay. You have a lawyer that comes free of charge. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll never need him in that regard, but you know. <laughs> Let, let's hope not. But uh, advocare, advocate to speak on behalf of, a consoler. A paraclete, which also means in the Greek, advocate. Uh, I remember years ago as a seminarian, when I was pursuing my Thomistic philosophy, we had Sunday high vespers in the parish church, all the seminary uh, with the the oratorian fathers. And there was a, a younger... Uh, young lady there with her family that would come to Vespers, and when it came time for the divine praises at the end of Solomon Vespers, right after the benediction of the Blessed Sacrament over the congregation, she would say very clearly, while all the other rest of us were saying, blessed be the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, meaning advocate in the Greek, this little girl shouted from the top of her lungs, blessed be the Holy Spirit, the parakeet, (laughs) because she saw these images of the blessed trinity of the the father and the son depicted as male. Again, Jesus came as a biological male in his sacred incarnation through the womb of the Blessed Mother and was on earth for some 33 years, sacred tradition tells us, had a full human nature just like ours but sin. He revealed the Father as Father in the masculine form, Uh, but the Holy Spirit in art is always depicted as the dove, so I think she saw the dove and maybe the family had a parakeet, I don't know, and so she put the two together. But no, the the, the Holy Spirit is not female, Uh, instead we ascribe to the Holy Spirit those other terms that I've explained.
1: Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday. Brett has contributed to that mailbag. He wants to know, how does one who's not married in the church rectify the situation?
2: Well, Brett, that's a loaded question because you could show me five couples who need a rectification of their current marriage situation, and it could be literally five different Marriage situations. So, for example, the With first five
1: different remedies.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So, for example, you can have two baptized Catholics who have never ever been married before. They married each other in a park. Well, that's going to be a fairly easy rectification because there's no prior marriages that need to be uh, declared null and void through an annulment process. They're they're free of the bond to marry one another because there's no prior marriages. The only thing they did wrong was they didn't get married in the Catholic Church per se. They got married in a park. So that was wrong. So that type of thing. Then you can have a a case number two or case B where you have uh, the husband's never been married before, but the wife has been married before. Again, both Catholics. Then uh, case number C where... Uh, the, the husband's Catholic, the wife's not Catholic. She's a fervent Baptist, but she's had two prior husbands, let's say. So every case will be different. So, what do you want to do? You want to set up an appointment with your local parish pastor and explain to him your particular situation. That's how you begin to rectify a certain marital situation. Explain to the pastor what the marriage case is for both. Uh, and what it's going to take to remedy this situation. It could be that one of them is currently unmarried, but they want to marry, so they haven't remarried yet, but they want to remarry in the church. Fine, explain that to the pastor. But you begin by making an appointment with your pastor. It could be that your pastor, mind you, will have somebody on staff to serve as a uh, uh, the person who analyzes the the initially, at least, the marriage cases. I, I've I've been at many parishes, for example, where the permanent married deacon is on staff, full time at the parish, and he handles all the marriage cases for his pastor. Uh, the pastor has to give final consent and sign off on the documents, but it's the deacon who does all the deciphering of the particular. Uh, scenarios of these different cases but that's where you begin as your with your local uh, parish uh, priest and have an appointment with him at your local parish. And I commend you Brett on a great question in this regard that you want to rectify the situation. I don't know if you're referring to your own situation or maybe a grown son of yours that you'd like to see in your, you'd like to see maybe your grown son have his marriage uh, rectified in the church and have haven't made sacramental so he can receive the sacraments again. Either way it's a beautiful thing Brett that you're showing uh, Uh, purposeful intent of of wanting the situation rectified.
1: And, you know, it's very important to investigate these things because there's a lot of information out there, and not all of it is accurate. And there are a lot of people that are uh, going through their lives thinking that there's no hope in the Catholic Church for their personal situation, and that may or may not be the case.
2: Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's worth setting up the initial appointment, and even if the pastor says, you know what, this is too confusing for me, I'm going to send you to the marriage tribunal head at the diocesan office and have you have a meeting with him or her, the person who heads up the the marriage tribunal for the diocese. Have a, have a simple meeting with that person, and they'll offer you greater clarity. So if it can't be resolved at the parish level, fear not, Uh, there's always the diocesan level.
1: Um, Ian says, I am Protestant, becoming Catholic this year. My wife and children are not. Can I still participate in their service to encourage their spiritual growth while also attending Mass?
2: You can, uh, but I would be careful, uh, Ian, that it doesn't come uh, a religious indifferentism on your part. Because as a Catholic entering the Catholic faith, or as a, as a Protestant who's entering the Catholic faith, you know full well the fullness of truth that the Catholic Church teaches. For example, her four marks, one holy, Catholic, and Apostolic, um, the seven sacraments, the three sacraments of initiation baptism confirmation holy eucharist the two sacraments of union which are at the service of communion to the populaces of the world that is matrimony and holy orders matrimony for physical life holy orders for spiritual life and then of course lastly the two sacraments of healing confession and the anointing of the sick for the reality of the body soul compositeness of the human person Uh, you know these truths so you, your goal is to share these beautiful truths with your wife and children, and indeed the decision li- lies with them whether or not they want to convert to the Catholic faith. But if they see a religious indifferentism to you, they're going to say, What is the big deal of becoming Catholic? All, all religions are the same. And that actually borders on what Father John Harden would call an agnostic indifferentism. That, uh, what the heck? Uh, if God is out there, every religion is the same. Well, no. The, Almighty God sent His only begotten Son, who revealed Himself and the Father and the Holy Spirit, and established a church that we know by her four marks. So I would say that yes, you can still participate in their Protestant service to encourage their spiritual growth, but I wouldn't make it an every single Sunday thing. Maybe if they have a, a special event happening at their church and that involves one of your children or your wife, a recognition of some sort, yes, you want to go be there to support them. But you would surely, surely never let your worship at their church usurp your Sunday obligation at Holy Mass, the celebration of the Eucharist, the source and summit of the Christian life, once you become a Catholic. You would never let that happen.
1: Uh, and finally, today, Justine writes in: "What is the issue that the Catholic Church has with gender reassignment surgeries?"
2: Great question, uh, Justine, and I thank you very much for it because it's such an important topic and a timely topic uh, currently in 2023. And before I I provide you with an answer, I want I want to urge you to look at ewtn.com on demand series. Uh, at the EWTN website, and you'll find a five-part series titled The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know. It's very balanced. It's very forthright. It gives the teachings of the faith based on one's baptism and confirmation and upholding the truth. And again, The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know, it can be found at EWTN.com slash On Demand by that very title, okay? The Church recognizes, Justine, that every human person is created in the image and likeness of God, male or female, He made them. In His own image and likeness, He made them. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. God doesn't make no mistakes. If you can claim that God has made a mistake, then you can simultaneously claim there is no God. He's not the all-perfect being, if he made a mistake, okay? And so instead, the Church urges us to help people discover their true identities as children of God, not support them in a disordered attempt to reject their undeniable biological identity that we know precisely by the biological reality. In this light, we should act in love toward those who experience gender identity disorder, so-called gender dysphoria, which can be a very real phenomena. and we need to reprove those who engage in name-calling and other uncharitable behavior toward them. Uh, the young need to be helped to accept their own body as it was created by God, For thinking that we enjoy absolute power over our own bodies, turns often subtly, Justine, into thinking that we enjoy absolute power over creation. Okay? Which, interestingly enough, is why the Church is against such things as uh, clairvoyance, uh, uh, tarot cards, uh, communicating with the dead, because at the end of it all, those types of things that are occultic behavior, they lean towards a control over the reality of things. And in one sense, albeit in a different avenue, we have the same thing happening here. Uh, we think that we can enjoy absolute power over our own bodies, and this turns often subtly into thinking that we enjoy absolute power over creation. And An appreciation of our body as male or female is also necessary for our own self-awareness, in an encounter with others different from ourselves. And in this way, we can joyfully accept the specific gifts of another man or woman, the work of God the Creator, and find mutual enrichment.
1: Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I
2: certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, terror of demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host,
1: Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it next week. Until then, God bless.